0: Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer.
1: Welcome. Today, we're talking about saving California shores in the 20th century. And later in the show, we're going to talk about methane gas hydrates threatening the 21st century. My guest is Richard Charter. Hello, Richard. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. Richard Charter is a senior fellow at the Ocean Foundation, and he's been working with local government, state, and members of Congress in Washington on issues related to offshore drilling for 35 years. So before we go back in history, um, I, I see you have put out a posting uh, of yesterday's vote at the you know, at the House of Representatives, the uh, Natural Resources Committee, uh, they actually voted 23 to 18 to approve a measure that would expand oil drilling in federal waters in the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. Now, I know there are a lot of things that they considered and passed at that time, but this is, this is the one thing that's getting the most press coverage, I think.
2: It has today, and this is definitely breaking news. And although coastal protection and preventing offshore drilling on sensitive coastlines has always in the past been a very bipartisan issue. It's not been a Democratic or Republican issue. We are all of a sudden seeing sort of a Republican war on our coast. And yesterday was a reflection of that. Uh, Although the Obama administration has not, you know, made any plans to open the rest of the California coast to immediate expansion of offshore drilling or to you know, drill on the Atlantic coastline before there's enough information to know what it's going to cause in terms of impacts. Yesterday, the House Natural Resources Committee, in its beneficent wisdom, decided to force uh, the Obama administration. And, of course, this would still have to pass the House and be adopted in the Senate, and we don't know that it has a chance of a snowballing hell in the Senate, but... It would force the Obama administration to open uh, basically from New Jersey down to the Cape in Florida to offshore drilling virtually immediately without even doing the environmental studies. And uh, nationwide, any state that has any prospect of offshore oil or gas, 50% of the prospective offshore waters would have to be open to drilling uh in each five year leasing program, these things are organized into five year increments. So, this is a dramatic shift. If it were to be adopted and make it through the Senate uh, and be signed into law, you would see drilling rigs popping up on places like the Outer Banks in North Carolina pretty quickly.
1: 50% has to give way to offshore drilling despite the other uses. Is that what it says?
2: Well, the way the Outer Continental Shelf, that's the part of our coast that extends out under the ocean. Our continent has these sort of shoulders, if you will, and that's the OCS, the Outer Continental Shelf. The Department of Interior has decided uh, divided the Outer Continental Shelf over the years into what are called OCS planning areas. So on the Atlantic coast, there's the North Atlantic, the Mid-Atlantic, and the South Atlantic planning area, In California, there's the Northern California, uh, Central California, and Southern California planning area. So in each of those planning areas, 50% of the area, 50% of the waters, would have to be offered for lease to the oil industry every five years, pretty much irregardless of what the opinion or position of the affected state might be. So this is definitely an erosion of states' rights, and the first... uh, indication that we might see the oil industry essentially transform our coastlines very rapidly.
1: Because this is where most of the marine life is. Well, it's the most
2: biologically productive part of the ocean is really uh, on the Outer Continental Shelf and on the Continental Slope where it drops off into the deeper waters. And, of course, in certain of these areas, for example, in Northern California, we have what's called an ocean upwelling one of the foremost productive ocean upwellings on the planet where deep nutrient-rich cold water rises to the surface as the wind blows across the surface of the ocean, it sort of draws up this nutrient-rich water and in an upwelling, the nutrients then move along the coast on the currents and the sunlight works on them and that's the food source of our fisheries and our seabirds and our marine mammals so, you're really talking about drilling now in some of the most biologically sensitive areas under U.S. jurisdiction.
1: Yeah, in New England, we have a lot of um, well, a lot of of the fish and marine life will retire down the continental slope to what seems like warmer waters, I guess, during the winter months. So uh, the monk fishery, for example, uh, works right along that continental slope. So they catch the monk in these uh, 12-inch wide, you know, gill nets, so you don't catch much else but skates and, and monkfish. And they're all coming up, you know, from having spent time, you know, in the deeps there, uh, coming up onto the continental shelf. So it's going to be a real drag to have all these oil rigs uh, positioned uh, on those shelves and stuff.
2: Well, the interesting thing about uh, New England is that Georges bank, uh, was really the first place that the oil industry tried to open up. In the in the 1970s, even Jimmy Carter, with his Secretary of Interior, Cecil Andrus, was planning to open Georgia's Bank to offshore drilling, and uh, Congress at that time, and in a bipartisan way, led by then-Congressman Silvio Conte, stepped in and cut off the funding for drilling on Georgia's Bank. So... You know, now that these areas are all exposed, even Georgia's Bank is in jeopardy, Uh, I think you're going to see drilling rigs in places you probably shouldn't and accidents that will make the Deepwater Horizon incident in the Gulf of Mexico three years ago just pale by comparison. We're, We're moving into oil that is more risky to go get, and it happens to be... Uh, co-mingled, if you will, with some of our most biologically sensitive national treasures.
1: Uh, It's wonderful to hear you mention Silvio Conte. He's such a hero here in Massachusetts. Have you had opportunities to see him in action?
2: I absolutely did. He was one of the champions of the early days of what was called the OCS moratorium, the Outer Continental Shelf Moratorium, when we had a Secretary of Interior named James Watt who... uh, really was dedicated to drilling everywhere. He was the first drill-baby-drill inventor of the term, I think. Uh, Conte simply stepped in in his, you know, beneficent wisdom and and the power of the Appropriations Committee and cut off Watts' money to drill Georgia's bank. So he's a champion uh, all around the country because it was his work with then-Congressman Lessa Coyne from Oregon those two together really saved the uh... california coast and the coast of massachusetts
1: well that's a good segue into um, your work on the california coast uh... some years ago in an earlier episode of this uh... my radio program david Helvard came on and he talked about his new book uh, golden shores i guess it's called yep and he speaks very highly of your work but um... he didn't actually mention you by name i think in the interview um... so what what was going on in those early years?
2: Well, Golden Shores, David Helvark's book, is excellent because it, it lays out a chronicle of, of how this all came about. But we have had a uh, three-decade-plus tug-of-war, if you will, with the oil and gas industry and their representatives in Congress over sensitive parts of the outer continental Shelf and whether they were going to be you know protected as important fishing grounds which of course contribute to the balance of trade as well as provide you know food source for the residents of the country or whether they were going to become sacrifice areas and the primary tool that we adopted and this really began with local governments cities and counties here in California is where is where this idea began and I happened to be working for them through the 1980s was uh, called the Congressional Moratorium, and that means simply that as each year Congress would prepare to appropriate money to operate the Department of Interior, it would specify certain geographic areas where that money could not be spent, and that simply happened in a line of code in the Interior Appropriations Bill that said no funds shall be expended under this title, for leasing, pre-leasing and related activities and and then it would lay out the area. In your case, George's Bank, in our case, the California coast in Oregon, the coast of Oregon. And this was renewed each year, one year at a time, through great effort by local and state officials and the help of people like Sil Conte and Senator Barbara Boxer and, and Markey in more recent years. This was renewed every single year for 27 consecutive years. Wow. And it was then supplemented by uh, both Presidents Bush uh, supported this and actually uh, overlaid it or reinforced it with executive instructions or executive orders, which were presidential deferrals. So there was never anything partisan about protecting the coast until very recently. It was always a bipartisan effort that yes. allowed it to succeed. And, uh I personally think that the, the Republican effort to open sensitive areas to offshore drilling is not only ill-advised, but I think politically it doesn't serve them well. And they don't even want to wait for the science to tell them whether, you know, whether and where it might be, uh, you know, appropriate. It's it's just disregard the science and turn this whole whole issue of coastal protection. They're trying to make it a political football, and we saw that. In the run up, of course, to the presidential election. But I think some of them, as I saw yesterday in the committee markup, they don't know that the presidential election's already happened. Right. They also don't happen to know, we all observed in the committee markup yesterday, they don't know which direction the Gulf Stream goes. They argued about that for about five minutes. And uh, they seem to have a lot of confusion about the technology of offshore drilling. It's, it's a little alarming. To anyone with experience with the technology, particularly those of us who went through the Gulf spill, in, in terms of you know understanding what was going on there with the Macondo well blowout, it's a little alarming to see individuals who know nothing about you know the biology of the ocean, the ecosystem on the outer continental shelf, and know nothing, uh, next to nothing about offshore drilling, making these decisions about the whole U.S. coastline. It's it's really um, alarming.
1: Well, I mean, the Gulf Stream, you think they would know by the name.
2: You would think, but uh, it became quite clear that even the chairman didn't know which way the Gulf Stream went.
1: Well, for the listeners, um, and lest you, you feel awkward, let me remind you that it's called the Gulf Stream because it comes out of the Gulf of Mexico. Squeezes in between uh, the Bahama Islands and Florida, the Straits of Florida, yep. which I think are the roughest seas in the world because you've got all this water mass being channeled through that narrow um, bottleneck there. Yep. And then it heads on up off New England to um, past Nova Scotia off to Ireland,
2: right? Yeah, and it kind of bounces offshore a little bit at Cape Hatteras. And that generates a circular motion of water in a counterclockwise direction uh, off of New England, uh, sort of a gyre. And if you ever got oil entrained in some of these nearshore countercurrents, some of these little gyres, in terms of a spill, what would happen is the kind of thing we saw on the Gulf Coast in certain areas where oil would come ashore from the spill, there would be an attempt at a spill response, which has never been really effective, a cleanup, and then a week later, oil would come ashore again, and a week after that, and a week after that. So these uh, nearshore uh, gyres are extremely uh, visible. They actually become visible from the air when you have an oil spill. You can watch the oil move around in them, and this is probably the worst possible place anywhere along the Atlantic coast, say the Outer Banks, if you've got oil behind the barrier islands, say, in Georgia or, mm. you know, any of the Carolinas or up any of the river estuaries or even in New England uh, into the sort of a convoluted coastline is the most uh, hazardous place to have any kind of oil spill. And if you ever get oil into Chesapeake Bay in a spill, don't call me. Uh, it's going to have a residence time of 50 years or more. And so there's, there's not really... You know, much consideration being made of of what we call the impact areas. What, what, what you're putting at risk if you have drilling on the, off the coast of Maine or on George's Bank. Uh, They're not thinking really with logic or science. They're looking at, you know, serving their constituents in Houston and the oil companies.
1: Yeah, the whole science of fractals uh, was promoted greatly when an English professor, a professor in England, Asked his students to measure the British coastline, uh-huh. and every time they took a measurement, he said, "We'll measure in smaller units." Yeah, you know, and so they found that it's an infinitely long coastline because every nook and cranny can be divided into more nooks and crannies. Absolutely, <laughs> and uh, this is the problem with uh, the eastern seaboard, yep. um, unless they had uh, well, behind, and and then behind the barrier beaches as well, but. Uh, Either you've got barrier beaches and it's behind them, or it's, you know, like Chesapeake Bay or the whole coast of uh, New England, um, you know, past uh, Plum Island or, or Portland or something. Yeah, well, when
2: I go out Acadia National Park, out onto the rocks there, I yeah. think I sure hope I never see oil spill impacts here. I mean, there's just a type of coastline that you don't want to ever see it happen and Certainly New England uh, is emblematic of that type of coastline. And then you have the very rich fisheries, the biological system, and actually one of the most uh, well-studied oil spills of all time called the West Falma Spill, which I think goes back now about 40 or 50 years, I forget the date, but it was really close to Woods Hole. It was a barge spill, it was oil. And it got layered into the sediments of an estuary at West Falmouth, and like a layer cake, the oil. Yeah. And today, you can still take a shovel and cut down through the the sediments there and find oil that smells and acts, and is just as toxic as the day it was
1: spilled. But you can eat the Sipwissit Marsh. Um, oysters now—they are managing to, to grow oysters there and yep. Shipwitted Marsh, which is on Buzzards Bay in West Falmouth.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, it takes a long time. People don't realize we're going to be dealing with the impacts of the, you know, the BP Deepwater Horizon Gulf spill for at least half a century.
1: Oh, yeah. I was up in Alaska and, and walked down to the ocean line in Stewart, and there was still oil on the rocks from the Exxon Valdez spill. Yeah,
2: that was 89. Yeah, you, you could it on the rocks. You know, yeah, once slit, it gets you know. in those spaces between the rocks. And, yeah, and the tide uh, pools. Especially the kind of rocky cobble beaches you have in yeah. Prince William Sound. Once it's between the rocks, uh, the sunlight and the air doesn't act on it, and
1: it just it's just there. It just thickens it. It makes it more... Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, we're going to have to take a break, all and right. i got to recover from all this bad news. Oh, well, well, be back. we'll have good news. when you. Okay. Have uh, some good news will we get back with Richard Charter.
2: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Talk,
2: talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer.
1: Hi, we're talking with Richard Charter, a senior fellow at the Ocean Foundation, and he has been working to uh, save our shores from offshore drilling and oil spills and so forth for 35 years. We were going to talk about, you know, what happened long ago. But what's happening today is stranger than history in that the uh, House Natural Resources Committee just yesterday voted 23 to 18, pretty much along partisan lines, to, uh, to what? Well,
2: what they voted for was opening pretty much the whole Atlantic coast and the whole Pacific coast to offshore drilling, and specifically added drilling in Bristol Bay, Alaska, the richest soc- sockeye salmon on the planet. And what, what these votes really are symbolizing is the ability of members of Congress uh, who are, you know, to be fair, they're trying to serve a particular set of contributors, which is the oil companies, but what they ignore is the economic importance of a clean coast. And here in California, we have the fifth largest economy in the world. Uh, traditionally, a lot of it's been based on the coastline. And in 2000, we did a very comprehensive and peer reviewed sur- study of just exactly how much the coastal economy was worth in California. And in 2000, that number, the, the gross state product, the GSP, was almost 43 billion dollars just in california in the year 2000 now that was the economy's changed somewhat since then but it gives you an idea you know and a lot of states haven't done this kind of close-hand look at how much the clean coastal waters and the clean coast adds up to in terms of coastal dependent tourism healthy fisheries you know the secondary multiplier effects of processing the fish and All of those things really are drivers in these coastal states. We we learned this the hard way, of course, in the Gulf states. There were about five Gulf states that were hit really hard by Deepwater Horizon. But what this uh, knowledge has prompted us to do here in California and, and many other states are starting to pick up on it is to look for ways to protect our coastal economy with permanent protection for our coastal waters. And, of course, uh, in New England you have one of the flagship uh, sites in the National Marine Sanctuary program, which is Stellwagen Bank. Uh, We learned early on in California that creating a National Marine Sanctuary is virtually the only mechanism we have to get permanent protection, and we we knew that there was a hazard involved in trying to do this annual moratorium and renew it every year to gain another year of protection. So, uh, as the 1980s opened up, we began to create, mostly with local government pressure and uh, support from governors, uh, whoever was a governor, didn't matter if they were Democrat or Republican. We began to create a system of national marine sanctuaries along the California coast, starting at the Channel Islands and then around the Farallon Islands, half of California's nesting seabirds and uh, the concentration of marine mammals second to none uh, mm. around North America. And we then added Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. And then finally in 94, uh, Leon Panetta, when he was chair of the House Budget Committee, was able to add the largest one in the system at the time since eclipsed by Northwest Hawaiian Islands. But the uh, largest marine sanctuary in California is the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary. So we now have uh, a little over a quarter, not quite a third, of the California coast protected permanently from offshore drilling in National Marine Sanctuaries. And we're right in the middle right now of a process announced by President Obama in December of expanding northward the boundaries of the Gulf of the Farallones and Cordell Bank sanctuaries to add another 2,700 square miles of permanent protection up as far as Mendocino County. So Excellent. these are tools. You know, if you look at the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary... Um, and we've never been able to do a National Marine Sanctuary. We've tried at times through the years. We've never been able to do one, let's say, on the Outer Banks. There was a great deal of interest there uh, about 20 years ago.
1: Of oh, the so Carolinas,
2: you mean? The, yeah, the Outer Banks of North Carolina, if there's one place where you should not have offshore drilling, that's one of the places. And it's very important to think when you have a, an environmental threat like offshore drilling, and there's no question it's not just the threat of a big spill someday, uh, that someday will come, sooner or later, it just seems inevitable in each region, but it's the day-to-day discharges of toxic, you know, spent drilling muds and Mm. produced waters and, you know, with heavy metals and polycyclic aromatic, uh, what they call PAH compounds and BTEX compounds, Uh, these things poison the ocean and, and they add up and and that's uh, just part of the the problem that comes with this technology. So we we really need to be looking, I think, right now at the Atlantic coast for you know potential. We've got you know we're lucky here and on the West Coast. We've got Olympic Coast National Marine Sanctuary and in, in Washington State. The, uh, the Atlantic coast needs more uh, attention from the standpoint of National Marine Sanctuary uh, designation. Yes. And Especially, southern,
1: like you said, around Hatteras and yeah. uh, central parts of the eastern seaboarding Absolutely, and as well as New England. I
2: mean, Stellwagen Bank is wonderful. I had the privilege to go out there a few years ago, and I think I saw 14 whales in one trip. But, you know, it, you have coastal assets, if you will, in this in this country that are national treasures so like, at least as important as Yellowstone or Yosemite in our national parks and they do not have a component of protection that extends out into the ocean and the the tool that's available to do that, really the only tool under existing federal law is the creation of a National Marine Sanctuary Yes,
1: it's a fabulous tool and so the Ocean River Institute was getting comments from people all over the country and the world on why Stellwagen Bank National Marine Sanctuary should have a, a good general management plan. Yep. And, you know, the thinking is the stakeholders are local. Well, we had people from all 50 states writing in, people from Tennessee saying, you know, my great-grandfather was a was a sea captain and I care. Or uh, people from California saying, "I was on the voyage of the Mimi with Ben Affleck," and, and we care about that. And yeah. and you think about it, you know, how that um, who in this country hasn't seen the movie or read the book? You know, Moby Dick, uh, Perfect Storm, *Cabin's Courageous*, or *Jaws*, yeah. and they all take place in these Massachusetts waters. So the message for the administrators was, you know, hello, you know, even though people may not, I mean, people may not visit the ocean today they expect, that they can bring their children or grandchildren or, you know, in their retirement or something, come to the ocean and experience the ocean that they grew up thinking about. It's it's a, um, like you said, it's a national treasure.
2: Well, I don't want to, personally, I don't want to have to explain to my grandson or granddaughter, who are old enough now to understand and care, why we were dumb enough as a society to let them sacrifice the Outer Banks of North Carolina. You know, they right. live in Virginia, and I just I look at them, and, I, and you know, they, I talk to them about this, and my granddaughter, she draws little pictures of, you know, when the, especially uh, since the Gulf spill. I mean, she knows about marine life. She knows about spills. And I think we, we have an obligation to the next generation that we're not thinking about in things like what happened yesterday, embarrassingly enough, in the House Natural Resources Committee. We're skipping the next generation in terms of a player at the table. And so NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the National Marine Sanctuary Program, has reopened uh, what they call their site nomination lists for new sanctuaries. Excellent. And this is very important because what it enables the public to do is to begin to identify places worthy of this kind of permanent protection. And I think uh, folks need to realize that we don't need to just lay down and let the oil industry take it all. There's going to be a heritage from our generation to the next that really is no different than the generation that passed, you know, the Grand Canyon and the Yellowstone and, and Yosemite and places like that onto us. That's our responsibility now is to pass some of these coastal places, you know, the national
1: treasures of the coast, on to the next generation. That's right. And they're already expecting it. So we really have an obligation. And yep. I, I want to urge people if you have. Uh, ideas or concerns, uh, you're welcome to write me, rob at org or visit our website oceanriver.org and subscribe to our e-alerts so you can hear about opportunities. Uh, there's just so many directions to go and one is outrage in these recent actions by the Natural Resources Committee. And we and have I was thinking broadly about, you know, what what are some of the places that we should be protect, doing more to protect?
2: And we have a website specific oh, to this issue, which is sanctuary expansion. One word: sanctuary expansion. Sanctuary expansion. dot and, and that's a great
1: place to go for information about the fair loans you're doing. Yeah,
2: exactly. It's it's what we're doing right now to expand existing national marine sanctuary protections. Sanctuary expansion. org. So. Check it out because this is really one of the cutting-edge issues of our time.
1: Yes, and it really is a legacy thing that what we do now will be remembered forever. So uh, not like the day-to-day decisions. And and what are some of the justifications for expanding the thalerones, was it? Well, um, I mentioned
2: earlier in the show the idea of these ocean upwelling systems. Yes. And we have uh, one of the most productive ocean upwelling systems on the planet, one of the four most productive ocean upwelling systems, right off of uh, Point Arena in Mendocino County. It's outside and to the north of the existing National Marine Sanctuaries. So what happens as these nutrients rise up at that point, as the wind blows across the surface of the sea, it pulls up the nutrients. Then they move south on the prevailing seasonal currents, and those nutrients are what is driving the concentrations of marine life within the existing sanctuaries. So what we're doing is stepping up the food chain, you might say, and protecting the source of life in the existing, we have an existing investment, In the present national marine sanctuaries already created by the last four presidents, and we are now trying to protect the the driver of life in those sanctuaries. And I would suggest there may be analogs to that in places like Stillwagon Bank. In other words,
1: yes, yes, there are. And and, um, that uh, you know, Jeffrey uh, Jeffrey's ledges is the next uh, shallow area to the north, and that's actually portions of that. Yeah. Is part of the Bank National Marine Sanctuary. Yep. But then we have Cassius Ledge, which is further offshore, kind of in the middle of the Gulf of Maine, and that would be a wonderful sanctuary if if that could ever happen. Well, if that can ever
2: happen, the way to get it done is to get it on the site nomination list at NOAA, and begin the process. Some of these some of these protections we have uh, on the Pacific Coast took as long as 14 years to get them done, but. Can't expect results overnight. You have to be very patient. That's right. Keep leaning on the door until it opens, and eventually you can actually change the course of history.
1: We also have some canyons in the slope waters. Yep. Um, And that's where I led a successful sperm whale watching expedition where we went out, took all day to get there, and then there were sperm whales all about. And, um, you know, people don't know we have these resources until. One goes out and do it. That's how well, the whole whale watch industry started. Was a bunch of science supervisors encouraged the hook and line fisherman Al Avalar to take his boat out early in Provincetown, and well, the rest I think is history. What's
2: going to increase public awareness, particularly on the whole Atlantic coast, in, in these resources, the biological? Uh, gardens, if you will, that need protection. I mean, there's cold-water corals off the Outer Banks, for example, that we never knew about before.
1: No. And, of
2: course, the Outer Banks were leased once to the oil and gas industry, and after about six years of litigation, they were bought back with taxpayer money, the leases off the Outer Banks. So to lease them again... Well done.
1: You got it back, though.
2: Yeah, to lease them again, it makes no sense at all. But what we're going to see is, I think, in the next uh, couple of years are very intensive and very invasive seismic surveys from these geophysical ships all up and down the Atlantic coast. At least that's what's in the planning stages right now at the Interior Department. And there's a supplemental environmental impact statement out on that. And basically uh, that alone, I mean, never mind that it's the precursor to offshore drilling, Seismic surveys themselves cause damage, particularly where you have large concentrations of marine mammals, and they definitely interfere with fisheries. They they drive the fish out of an area sometimes for weeks.
1: Is but, because of loud noises?
2: Yep. It, this is a yeah. uh, seismic air gun, a uh, whole array of seismic air guns towed behind a ship. Uh, they are very uh, powerful, and the impulse they send through the ocean, if you fire them off the uh, coast of New England, you'll be able to pick up that sound signature as far away as a mid-Atlantic ridge. Wow. These are regional ocean sound impacts, and you're talking about literally tens of thousands of these explosions. In a, in a seismic survey, they do a, sort of a crosshatch pattern like a macrame back and forth to try to gather geophysical information about where the oil and gas might be under the, under the seabed, And, of course, the marine life is all in the way.
1: Yeah, they're going to, you know, fish with swim bladders and things are going to be blowing their, oh, my gosh.
2: It's a pressure wave. And they've even come up with impacts on crabs in recent years. But fish, in particular, uh, are susceptible to this. And, of course, it's—it's various kinds of ocean noise are associated with some of these mass strandings of of marine mammals where they uh, beach themselves. And we Mm. don't know why. So whether it's, uh, you know, naval-type sonars or seismic survey ships. These are not uh, benign activities in our oceans, and we're about to see a lot of this take place on the Atlantic coast if we're not careful.
1: Because they are part and parcel with permitting offshore exploration.
2: That's what comes first, is you you do the seismic surveys, and that tells the oil companies where they want to push for drilling, and then the Interior Department uh, takes that information and turns it into a lease sale, it's called, where, you know, the whole ocean off our coast is divided into little squares, three miles by three miles, each nine square miles, and uh, they're called tracts, T-R-A-C-T. And a tract uh, has a number, and essentially a lease sale is when you lease those tracts to the highest bidder. This is just like. Uh, eBay, if you will, and mm-hmm. oil companies purchase the right to drill on that tract. But it all starts with the seismic survey. So we want those tracts to be part of sanctuaries instead. If you move them from, like, I always, you know, have worked on this issue pretty much my whole life, and I visualize, my people say, what do you do? And I, and I visualize this as a piece of paper with two columns and the left column is unprotected ocean and the right column is protected ocean and I try to move, of course it's not just me, I mean hundreds of thousands of people and many elected officials and members of congress have worked on this and several presidents Uh, but I move things from the left column unprotected to the right column where it says protected sounds easy that sounds easy (laughs) and if you look at it in the big picture it isn't that hard. You
1: just have to keep the faith. Yeah, and it's an incremental process, and yep. so the victories are, are longstanding. And well, well, I think it was David Brower that
2: said in the environmental movement, all of our losses are permanent and all of our victories are temporary. So you have to keep fighting.
1: Well, we do have to keep fighting. My expression is um same thing I do every day, try to save the ocean. Yep. And we're always looking for you know that little step, whether it be don't pollute today or recycle a bit or turn the thingy off, be electrical or um, or other or faucets or whatever. You know, if, if anything, if only to reduce the carbon in the atmosphere, so you slow the acidification of oceans. You know, well, it
2: always felt like things. the right thing for me to be doing, so I've continued to do it uh, while raising a whole family and doing a you know a lot of other things. But yeah. It's just what I enjoy, and, uh, and I'm, I'm able to get out into places that I have helped to protect and feel connectivity to them.
1: Absolutely. Uh, We're because... going to stop on a good note this time, take a short break, and uh, be right back with Richard Charter. Great. The Internet's number
2: one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science.
2: Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. it. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer.
1: I'm speaking with Richard Charter, a senior fellow at the Ocean Foundation, And the first part of the program, we were all full of the bad news of expanding oil exploration and drilling and seismic surveys and so forth. And the second part, we were uh, gaining some hope with expanding national marine sanctuaries and opportunities for new sanctuaries and how that is, you know, our legacy to leave our children and that everybody living away from the ocean kind of expects all of us to be there. Um, So... In this, pro- in this portion, uh, Richard, what's, what's the next problem that we have on the horizon?
2: Well, as a society, we seem to be allowing certain industries to make decisions for us rather than asserting our will and making those decisions ourselves. And so we're not really seeing the institutional and economic commitment to renewables Energy efficiency and painless energy conservation that many folks think would be the logical thing to do in the face of global climate warming. There's not really any question anymore about whether climate change is real or not. And I think uh, everybody has had the sobering experiences of, of what we've seen, you know, in terms of hitting what's called baked in 400 threshold. We're going to be living with things like sea level rise and ocean acidification. And all of these things tend to argue that we should move away from carbon fuels, uh, very strongly argue that we should move away from carbon fuels or at least use carbon fuels more efficiently. However, there's an entire arm of the government and the industry that's looking for the next big thing in terms of carbon fuels. And that next big thing is called methane hydrates. The chemical term is methane clathrates, but it's generally known as methane hydrates. And what that means is very simple. It means that in the permafrost in the Arctic and under the deep ocean, you have uh, crystalline water ice, just good old H2O, H2O water ice, but locked in between the crystals of water ice is methane in very large quantities. And if we could extract that methane, if we could take it out and turn it into just gaseous methane, uh, i.e. natural gas, we would find uh, on the planet, they now believe, several orders of magnitude greater energy potential locked in methane hydrates than all the remaining conventional oil and gas on the planet. So this could be the next 50 to 75 to 100 years worth of energy com- consumption if we continue to use carbon fuels. Now, there are certain uh, questions, I would say, and some grave concerns associated with how we go looking for and uh, extracting methane hydrates. We right now do not have a technology that we can count on for production of methane hydrates, although just this year there have been production tests in the Nankai trough off of Japan and also another one on the North Slope in Alaska, that have sustained for short periods of time production of methane by essentially letting uh, hydrates thaw out or defrost downhole and drawing out of that methane gas. But this is the next big thing. We're we're either going to be mining the bottom of the deep ocean or drilling into hydrate deposits. Uh, these are found in places like. Uh, off uh, in the Arctic Ocean, uh, off the coast of British Columbia, off the coast of Oregon, and off the coast of the Carolinas, and throughout the Gulf of Mexico. So this is, throughout the hydrocarbon fuels uh, sciences, this is really potentially the next big thing.
1: Totally. And I was surprised, I just assumed it was you know in cold cold places where methane get trapped in ice so it made sense with the permafrost that there might be methane trapped under there in this uh hydrates as well but as you were saying it's also under great pressure you don't need the cold you can have great pressure so we have great pressure under the sea and uh there's a lot of sea out on this planet so there could be a lot of uh, methane uh frozen in water i guess um this methane hydrate in all kinds of places, and um, and then one of the ideas was to let it melt out, but you know that's pretty limited, uh, and so they're getting more creative in that. And finally, I read that um, they estimated there's like 16 trillion, a huge number. Huge numbers. Uh, yeah, 16, uh, you know, gigamillion or whatever it was uh, compared to 10, uh, a red, what, pretty readily accessible hydrate, uh, methane hydrate, yep. versus like 10 of what's left in the natural gas department after you exhaust the shales and everything.
2: Well, everything um, about the ways that the planet has sequestered carbon, and this is really what it does, it's, it's deposited carbon in these hydrates, that either under great pressure at the bottom of the ocean, as you mentioned, or extreme cold at the bottom of the ocean or in the Arctic permafrost, everything about interrupting that sequestration process by which earth hides the carbon is fraught with a certain amount of peril in other words uh, human intervention to try to extract hydrates Uh, we need to be very careful that we don't for example trigger subsea landslides uh, that might be associated with liberating vast quantities of methane I mean There's a mud volcano in the geologic record uh, quite a ways offshore, off the Carolinas, which seems to have released about 15 cubic kilometers of methane at one time, all at once. Uh, Off of uh, Norway, there's a Trondheim escarpment, it's called. There's a subsea landslide that occurred uh, thousands of years ago in which the tsunami took out half of what is now Scotland in the geologic record, and it seems to have been caused or related to uh, exposing end on a deposit of hydrate concentration on the seafloor, and all of a sudden the methane comes out in a sudden burst. Now, the releases of methane are thought to have been associated in various ways with the ending of various ice ages through time, and we don't know for sure whether they ended an ice age or whether they were associated with ending an ice age, but we know that some ice ages ended pretty quickly in a matter of literally a few decades. What we don't know is if in looking for energy resources from hydrates, if we accidentally trigger sudden releases of methane into the atmosphere on top of what's obviously a global climate warming trend already. We're not in an ice age. We're in a, a runaway climate warming what that can do is potentially release methane into the atmosphere at a hazardous level that would actually accelerate global warming. And this theory, not everybody subscribes to it, but it's called the clathrate gun. Remember I said methane hydrates are known as clathrates. The clathrate gun hypothesis. And if you want to Google that word, clathrate gun hypothesis, you can learn a lot about how the world might end. I mean, this is serious stuff. And so, uh, it's important to pre- be precautionary as we move into these new technologies where we don't quite understand what we're messing with. We're kind of tinkering with the very wheelwork of how, uh, geostability and climate stability is established and maintained on this planet. And to run off and say, oh, we can make billions of dollars by you know drilling or mining this stuff uh, is going to be a little tricky
1: uh, until we learn exactly what we're doing well, I did I had fun looking that up and uh, class rate gun hypotheses and that there's some argument about how big a role it played in in the ice age you yep. know but you know, the argument is whether it's 70, 85, or 100%, you know, yes. problem. And, uh, more alarming was it's notably connected to the Permian extinction event. Exactly. When 96% of all marine species became extinct. Yes. About 251 million years ago. Uh, noticeably, well, I guess that was before there was such land animals and stuff, but this is clearly a, um, an issue first for marine life, I would imagine, because of the uh, acidification factors and what all. Well, the the ocean
2: has already been a little too successful at absorbing carbon from the atmosphere, and that's why we're seeing, I mean, Mm. if you think about the dramatic changes in the chemistry, it's patchy, but, you know, we're changing the chemistry of the whole ocean to the point where we're looking at certain industries like the shellfish industry, they're not sure if uh, calciferous uh, organisms can still build shells. And, and people visualize, you know, oysters and, and clams and various types of shellfish, but actually the, there are a lot of planktonic oh. organisms at the base of the food chain that are going to be uh, just as uh, seriously affected potentially by ocean acidification as uh, some of the more uh, traditional shellfish. So, what has happened, I think, is humans have gotten so good with their technology you know that we need to be a little more deliberate about how we deploy it, or we have uh, you know some hazards that we could unleash that we can 't turn back
1: yeah i 'm worried about uh, what 's happening in the North Sea with uh, Norwegians and their oil drilling drilling being rewarded by carbon trading yep. to uh, inject carbon dioxide back or stuff off or even natural gas back into the um, ocean floor and uh, this is one of their approaches to uh, extracting uh, the uh, methane from methane hydrates is to inject co2 or something else worse maybe
2: we might Uh, learn Uh, In the course of researching hydrates, I mean, there might be something to be learned from learning about how to destabilize uh, naturally occurring methane hydrates that would help us to understand whether, and we don't know yet whether, Mm. but to help us understand whether we could re-inject carbon dioxide back into similar structures. So there could be an exchange where you take out the methane and hide the carbon we're not there yet. It's just you know, frontiers of science, uh, still very hypothetical. But there could actually be very positive things learned from this research.
1: Yeah, that would be great, because right now the Norwegians are stuffing it into shale bottoms on the yep. North Sea, yep. and they just assume that the shale is, is airtight or something. We hope And so. yet I've got this sense of all this CO2 bubbling into the ocean floor right there, and they're getting their carbon credits, and we're watching the acidity. Acidity go down or up, whichever way you call
2: that. Yeah, well we're go
1: down, acidity go up. Yeah, we're
2: kind of a myopic species, and we tend to think in our generation, what can we get, what can we profit from, and I think that is catching up to us. With you know, nothing's really caught up with us except global climate warming. We know it's real. We know it's serious now. And you know, the best kept secret is how it's affecting the ocean. Uh, And we're going to have to deal with that because it's not just our generation. It's future generations who are making irreversible changes. And I'm, I'm an optimistic person. I know there's a lot of things to be concerned about out there, and we've talked about a few of them. But my optimism comes from the fact that we're very creative and ingenious people. Yes. You know, and we, we learn about things and, you know, if the stove is hot, we're not going to put our hand back on that same stove again. We learn that at a very early age. And I think we have some of the science, even some of the science we're using, uh, developing to try to learn about new potential hydrocarbon fuels like methane hydrates. Some of that science may serve us well in trying to come up with creative and innovative solutions to things like global climate warming. But overall, I think in the big picture, one of the things I think we haven't really paid attention to is using energy more efficiently.
1: You Richard, know, he, we just ran out of time, but okay. I think you just summarized, you know, hope because we're a can-do society, yep. and also the wisdom of we just have got to use less and, and try to be more resourceful.
2: And you can maintain the same lifestyle. It's just efficiency is the key word.
1: And, Richard, uh, before we go, how can people learn more about your work? What's the website you told us earlier about?
2: Sanctuary Expansion, one word, SanctuaryExpansion.org.
1: Richard Charter of the Ocean Foundation, thank you very much for uh, telling us about all this stuff. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Thank you all for listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues.
0: Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then.